Well, today we're continuing a series on, uh, that we're calling The Upper Room, and I've given it the title, Fulfilled, because today is a very historic day in the world of the church. Today is Pentecost Sunday. As I thought about this, that I began to work on this message, I, I, I thought of a, a joke that I heard. And basically, this, this pastor and his wife, this Baptist pastor and his wife, they, they decided they were always so concerned about what everybody in the church thought that basically every decision they made, they wanted to make sure it didn't rub somebody in the church the wrong way, so they were almost overly cautious. But they decided they wanted a dog. Well, they said, you know, if we're going to have a dog, we need to make sure that we have a Baptist dog. So they went and looked around, and, and they finally found a pretty high-end kennel that had lots of animals to choose from. They said, if, if there's any place that has a Baptist dog, it's going to be this place. So they went, and they walked in, and they told the owner of the shop, they said, we're looking for a dog, but we're not looking for just any dog. We're looking for a Baptist dog. But to their surprise, it didn't really phase the owner of the shop. He goes, I think I've got just the dog for you. So he disappears for a little bit in the back, and he comes back out, and bringing this beautiful little dog with him and the dog walks in and he says i believe this is the dog for you and he says well let's let's put that to a test a little bit he goes oh watch this he goes you just watch what this dog can do so the the owner of the shop looked at the dog and said fetch the bible and there's a little stack of books over there and sure enough the dog walked right and trotted over there his tail wagging kind of looked through grabbed the bible with his teeth brought it back and set the bible down on the floor right there in front of him he goes wow that's pretty good he goes, oh, well, that's, that's not all. Let me show you what else this dog could do. He looks at the dog and says, find Psalm 23. The dog begins to nudge the Bible open with his nose and use, uses his paws with amazing dexterity. Finally gets the Bible turned to, to the 23rd Psalm and places his paw right in the middle of it. And they're like, oh, that's, that's it. That's incredible. This is, this, is, this is exactly what we've been looking for. We'll take the dog. So they take the dog and they get the dog and they go back home and they decide, you know what, we're going to have a get-together for the people in the churches. They have people in the church over the house because they can't wait to show off their Baptist dog. So people get together and they said, oh, we we got to show you what our new dog can do. And so right there in front of everybody, the pastor looks at the dog and he says, go fetch the Bible. And the dog runs right over to the bookshelf, looks around, finds the Bible, pulls it down with his paw, grabs it, and comes and begins to bring the Bible and lays it there in front of him. Everybody's amazed. Then he goes, oh, guys, that's not all. He says, find the 23rd Psalm. Dog does what it did before, digs through and finds the 23rd Psalm and puts his paw on it. Then he says, you know what? We hadn't tried any other passage, so him and some other people began to call out two or three other scriptures, and every time the dog could find the passage and put his paw right on it, they were amazed. So one of the people that was attending the little get-together says, well, well that's the, all that's great, but does the dog do any normal tricks? The pastor said, I don't know. He says, let's find out. So he points right there, and he says, heal. And the dog comes running over, jumps up on a chair, raises up, puts his paw on his forehead, and begins to howl. And the couple gets up, they sit, they say, we got to take this thing back. They gave us a Pentecostal dog. (laughs) 
And I know that that's a, a silly joke, but how many know that sometimes the word Pentecost can have connotations in some people's minds that doesn't have anything to do with the reality of what God intended? Sometimes you might say that's the elephant in the room because here we are, it's Pentecost Sunday and we've gathered and, and today is an incredible day. Today is the day that we look back to the, to the birth of the church. We look back to the time when, when God poured out his Holy Spirit in that upper room and set those apostles and those early believers on fire and they begin to go and change the world. But when we say the word Pentecost, what comes to your mind? What kind of thing pops in? Do you picture people dressed funny? Do you picture some out-of-control service with all kinds of crazy things going on that, that may or may not be of God? But the truth is, there's a reason that we celebrate. There's a reason we should celebrate is because it's the day that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, fulfilling a promise that was an eight-century-old promise that the prophet Joel, eight centuries before, wrote and said that in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. See, historically, Pentecost is, is one of the main Jewish festivals. So many times we, it's become so linked with the New Testament church and with the charismatic, spirit-filled church or whatever terminology you want to use that we forget that it was an existing holiday or festival on the Jewish calendar long before that for centuries. And what it was is it was, it was a time that they celebrated because we all know that the Passover was the time they celebrated the fact that uh, God was going to pour out the last plague to set them, the plague of the firstborn, to set them free from captivity in Egypt and that they were to apply the blood of the lamb on the door and the, the Passover, the, the death angel would pass over them and that was the event that set them free. And so they were to celebrate this Passover, and they would continue to celebrate that. We know that centuries later, Jesus gave his life on the cross and became the Passover lamb. So there was no need for any more sacrifices because the blood of Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that fulfilled that promise. But the Passover was an event that was celebrated 50 days from there because 50 days from there was when Moses was on top of the mountain with God receiving the Ten Commandments. And that was the date that the, that the people of Israel celebrated God's giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. It also served as a time that they celebrated the fact that it was right about the time that the first harvest was coming in and the first fruits. And so it was this festival wrapped up into, things, into several things wrapped up into one. And so it was a time that the, that the city of Jerusalem was buzzing with people coming and going. You can imagine all the people bringing their offerings of first fruits, all these people sitting up, little stands and tables and selling some of their wares. And it was just a buzz of activity. And right then and there was the day of Pentecost that we're talking about. Fifteen centuries later, the Lamb of God had been crucified, and 50 years later, the promise was fulfilled of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. Therefore, Pentecost became synonymous 
with the early church. Matter of fact, they celebrated Pentecost on a regular basis. The early church had this event back in history that they celebrated. They called it, they literally at first called Pentecost Sunday, they called it White Robe Sunday. Because they would have what they called the, the, the white robed ones. There was literally this tradition that they would have those that were saved from the Passover time, Easter, to those that were saved and baptized during that gap between Easter and, and Pentecost Sunday. And that was the time, that 50-day period they would celebrate. And so those that had been saved and baptized during that time would wear white robes on that Sunday. So can you imagine what that would look like? Wasn't that neat? Because the early church, I mean, the early church had a lot of people getting saved in very fast words. You can imagine showing, can you imagine walking up, showing up on a Sunday and all of a sudden that you look around and there's all these people wearing white robes and you realize that these were the ones that over the last 50 days have given their lives to Christ and been baptized and that God has done a work in their life. I love how God takes all these things and he puts them together in such nice little packages. I don't see anybody can ever say that the word of God is not correct and right because he doesn't miss any details. It all ties together. It all fits. We see that there is usually a New Testament fulfillment of an Old Testament festival. Many people believe that Jesus' return will happen on the Feast of Trumpets because it just kind of fits. Who knows? We'll know when it happens, right? But my point is that God ties these things together. And so what we have here is we have this special thing called Pentecost Sunday that literally sits us apart. It sits the church apart because it's the time that we look that God poured out his spirit on all flesh. But many times it becomes this elephant in the room. Many times it becomes these things that, because many times if you use the word Pentecost, people have these images that pop in their mind, and, and they, they almost, it almost taints how they look at the church. Because they lump us in with some other group or something else, not even understanding that if they would come and give us a try. It was so exciting on Friday night. We had a group of, of guests this last Friday night. had some newcomers to the church come in, and they were at our house, and we had this huge group of people just hanging out, and we hung out, and we hung out, and we talked, and we visited, and we had a great time. But it was so neat hearing the perspective of different people from different backgrounds that were a part of that and hearing things like, I feel the presence of God there. Even if that wasn't their background. I thought, you know, isn't that what it needs? So many times we let that types and, and statements like Pentecost keeping us from just stepping in and looking past some of those things and just saying, no, but is this really of God? And giving God a chance to show that he still is active and alive today in his power. See, it's not that I'm ashamed. Sometimes I almost hesitate to say, that we could be considered a Pentecostal church just because some people close the door right there. But I'm not ashamed. Let's face it. Though if we take that a step further, for many people, the elephant in the room is tongues. What's that all about? I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, does your church speak in tongues? <laughs> yes. And I almost want to say, would you give me about 15 minutes to explain what I'm saying here before you kind of close your mind? But usually you don't get it. 
You know, it's almost like they're asking. I, I actually, they actually been even been asked this before. Does your church handle snakes? See what I mean? You, you, you say the term Pentecost and people kind of lump you into a group that's not necessarily it. We were talking Friday night after some people left, Pastor Nate and Matt and all of us were kind of sitting there while the ladies were talking and we decided what we were going to do. That whenever anybody asked that, we're going to say, oh, we only do that on the sixth Sunday of the month. But I want us today to, to get past the stuff, get past maybe some preconceptions that we have and back up and look at what really happened on the day of Pentecost because there's no doubt it is in God's Word. There's no doubt it is a, it is a part of what God does and who He is and those kind of things. And so we're going to look at it for just a moment this morning. I want us to see it and see a little bit the bigger picture because it's way more than tongues. I know that sometimes people get so caught up on one little thing that they miss the whole picture of what God's trying to accomplish. So as I begin to think about this idea of what the day of Pentecost means, I, I was kind of led to a place that probably would be the place that you'd normally use as a scripture for the day of Pentecost. I went to John 10.10. 10. Because something was fulfilled on that day. And John 10, 10 says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How many of you want a full life? How many of you want a fulfilled life? And what happened on the day of Pentecost was not only a fulfillment of a promise, it was fulfillment of so many other things. I mean, who doesn't want life to the full? Who doesn't want to be fulfilled? I prefer over Pentecost, although I'm not ashamed of it, I almost prefer to say we're a full, full gospel church. We believe the whole thing from front to back. There's no holes. There's no expiration date on any of it. But he wants us to be filled. Jesus came to fulfill all kinds of God's promises. He came to be the Passover lamb and the final sacrifice. He provided for what happened on the day of Pentecost. He also was there so that we could have life and have life to the full. And, and you and I have this opportunity to have a fulfilled life. Maybe you're here and you have heard things about this kind of church or you've had some misconceptions. As we look to the day of Pentecost and what it's all about, I want you to remember three things. It is all about the fulfillment of the promise. It is all about empowerment to live, to fulfill the mission of Christ. And it's all about you having a fulfilled life and a life with purpose. So this morning, I want you to leave with the answer to one question. See, our lives are filled with something but is yours fulfilled? We all have a hole. We all have a vacuum. We all have things. We all know innate. It's just inside of us. We know that as we walk through life, that there are things in life that are missing, that there's a hole, that there's a vacuum, and we walk through life, and we, we're going to fill it with something. Many times we feel it with the wrong things. We chase after the wrong things. We feel like we're missing love. So we look, as this old song says, we look for love in all the wrong places. But God 
is the only place, the only one that can fill that right. That space is there for a reason, and he longs to fill that space with his spirit. And when he does that, all of a sudden you will realize that your life is fulfilled. The more we empty ourselves, the more we have room to be fulfilled. As I said last week, you can only pour what you store. If we don't empty our lives of stuff, we can't store all the goodness that God has for us. There is something about when we allow him to cleanse us and we say, Lord, this space is your space. Come in and fill my life. What did he do? Jesus told his followers, I am going away, but you go and wait until you receive power. And they went and they waited. And we know that there is somewhere around 120 people, if you do the math of the names that are mentioned, that were there and that were waiting to be filled with the Spirit. They were seeking God. They were praying. They were, and, and so we get to the point on Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, where it says this, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared... To them divided tongues as a fire, and it set on each of them, and they were fulfilled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can you imagine, man, talk about a prayer meeting? Can you imagine if we were to gather together? We had a few, we had 15 people to gather together last night just to pray over this service. We had another seven this morning that came together to pray over this service because we believe that there's a power in prayer and asking God for a move of God. Amen. But can you imagine if in the middle of this prayer meeting you're just seeking God, all of a sudden you hear the sound of a mighty wind? It doesn't say wind was blowing furniture over anything. It just says there was a sound. But can you imagine all of a sudden you hear this roar? And all of a sudden you look up and you see little tongues of what looks like fire come in and begin to move and, and land on, on each and every person. And all of a sudden everybody in the room begins to speak in a language that they hadn't learned and God begins to move through them. And you can imagine what the show that must have put on. Because I don't think that it would have drawn the attention of the, gra- of the crowd if, all, if they were all sitting there with their hands folded praying this solemn little King James prayer, trying not to get too emotional. No, that was something that happened that got the attention of those on the outside because that was something that happened in that upper room. Years ago when we went to Israel, I had a chance to stand in that upper room and I pictured in my mind when we would get there what it would be like to be in that room. And I pictured just our little group standing in this room realizing that this was the place that happened. Well, it wasn't exactly like that. The place was packed with all kinds of tourists coming in and out. So it wasn't exactly a place of prayer. But I remember us walking over and kind of getting in a little corner. And I was asked, and I had the opportunity to open up the Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And I got to read that to our little group. And we got to stop and pray there in the upper room. What a moment. What a moment. But can you imagine? That's where God poured out his spirit. That's where the promise was fulfilled. Which leads me to the idea of the fulfilled promise. 
I mentioned this promise that had been made by the prophet Joel eight centuries before, over 800 years before. He penned those words that in the last day I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And now this happens. And all the people that are around and the crowd begins to realize there is something going on there. And their attention is drawn to it, and and they begin to ask questions, and things begin to happen. And I love what Peter says when he stands up and he addresses the crowd. He says, this is that that the prophet Joel spoke of, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he goes on as he begins to speak to that crowd that he had a great response to. In verse 39, it says this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See what he just did? He just made that generational. I'll read that again. It's for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Just think of this. Jesus paid the price of the cross. He was the sacrificial lamb. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Peter stands up and declares, though, and it was a historic fulfillment. It was a thing that took place. Can you, how, many knows, how many know that when sometimes you can be in the middle of an historic moment and you don't realize it's an historic moment until later on down the road? They were just having a prayer meeting. They were waiting on something God promised. You're not going to tell me that they knew that it was going to be an historic moment in in history when God was going to launch his church in power. But the crowd's there, and the crowd asks a great question. What does this mean? Great question. I love it when people ask the right question, just leave the door right up, wide up for you to wade right in. So let me tell you. And I'm challenging you, if anybody ever does that, don't back off, don't make excuses, don't walk away. They open the door, step right in and bring the answer. That's what Peter did. He stood up and he brought the answer. But there were those, let me know, anytime God does anything, there are going to be critics. They have to make up some excuse that fits their mindset so that they don't have to respond to what's happening. So you have people that are asking, what does this mean? You have other people, oh, they're just drunk. They're just drunk. But I love what Peter says in response. Verse 16 through 18. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in the last days. It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will see, dream dreams, and even on, every, on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is that promise fulfilled. They asked the question. And they made this statement. Ah, they're just drunk. 
When I've read that, I thought of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this may be uncomfortable for some of you to think of. But there was something going on that got the attention of the crowd. You can't just say, oh, they're just drunk unless you're seeing something that's just a little bit different than what you see every single day. So that was something that was happening. There was something that, that they said, you know, they're, they're, they're a little off. Something's going on here, and so that's just a good excuse. Well, they're just drunk. Peter addressed that. He says, just, it's still too early in the morning, guys. Come on. Here's a question I want you to think about. Has anyone ever charged you with being drunk with your Christianity? Now, I'm not talking about walking down the street wobbling. I'm not talking about driving under the influence of the Holy Spirit where you're all over the road, okay? I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Because how many know if the Holy Spirit's really involved, you're going to be driving miraculously well, Right? I'm not talking about the goofiness, but have you ever, have you, have your, has your following of Christ been so sold out? Have you been so full of God's presence that, that people just look at your life and they have to come up with some excuse and they say, you know what, you're just drunk with that stuff. You've, you've, you've drank too much of the Kool-Aid. See, there should be something in our life that stands out. Because that's what we see in the early church. All throughout the book of Acts, we read accusations like he or they. Those people are out of their minds. Or those who are turning the world upside down have now come to our town. we got to do something. And yet what you see is crazy as some of the things that happened. What you see is people were getting saved every day. Thousands were coming to Christ. People were being healed. Lives being changed. Stuff was happening and the church was growing by leaps and bounds at incredible levels. So much so that even on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and gave his speech, Scripture tells us that 3,000 people gave their life to the Christ that day. Well, the things I loved when we were in Israel. They were talking about, you know, there's a scripture that talks about them being baptized. They were talking about Peter's speech and they were saying, and, and, and people, historians have tried to say, well, that's not possible. There was no place for them to baptize that many people. But then archaeologists came along and they dug down and they found that on the outskirts there of that area where that speech was given that there were all kinds of ceremonial washing pools tons and tons of them they were designed for people to be able to come in as they traveled and cleanse themselves before they went on into the temple area can you imagine hundreds and hundreds of baptismal tanks right there see how God does things don't argue with his word. He's got it backed up. You're going to find yourself looking like a dummy. But I want you to look at all this. And, and if you read through the book of Acts and you're reading, you're seeing all these stories and all these things happening, and then all of a sudden the book of Acts just stops. 
There's no the end. There's no, well, this is the conclusion of the stories of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the early church. It just stops. When I read it, I very easily can see a dot, dot, dot afterwards. Or I can see the story continues. Because I believe the whole point of that is God did not intend for that to stop with the book of Acts. That what we have there is the pattern of how the the children of the living God that were following Christ were supposed to live this thing out. And the church is supposed to continue to operate full of power. Peter himself said it was multi-generational. Matter of fact, if you look at what Peter said in that passage, how else would you say this thing doesn't have an end? It's for you, your children, for all those who are far off, for all the whom the Lord our God will call. I mean, I think some people wouldn't, wouldn't be convinced, even if they opened their Bible and it said, yes, it's for June 9th, 2019, they would still find a way to get, try to get around it. But why are we scared that someone's going to think us drunk or think that something happened when this is exactly how the early church started? This is how they turned the world upside down. This is what we need to rock our community and our nation because all our lives are filled with something but is yours fulfilled. I don't know about you, I want to be filled. Matter of fact, The only way to be fully fulfilled is to be filled. Otherwise, you're trying to walk this thing out on half empty. I don't know about you. I struggle making it in this thing if I'm trying to do it by my willpower alone. I need a little help along the way. I can decide to lose weight, and I do good for a period of time. And I say, you know what, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to do everything I need to do. I even have an app I'm using right now that I can track everything I consume, and it scores me on points on my goal that I want to get to, and it's helping. But you know what? I know that if I don't stay on myself, my own willpower is only going to get me so far. And in our Christian life, we need empowering to see this thing through. And the good thing is, is my second point is this, is that it was that this Holy Spirit came to empower us to be fulfilled. He wanted to empower His church. He wanted us to be and do this thing empowered. Not by just our will. A fulfilling life is available to us if we're willing to let him come and to empower us. Matter of fact, Jesus told his, his disciples on, in Acts 1.8, we're all very familiar with this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Problem is, I think the church has become far too concerned with fitting in. We get too caught up in theological debates with denominations that aren't the same as ours. We're too concerned with running super tight organizations. 
And this idea of being filled with the Spirit many times is an afterthought if it's even mentioned at all on the church website. But God intended His church and His people to be empowered. I want a genuine move of God in the church and in my life. And it's the only cho- choice, it's the only hope that this, that this nation has. And it's the only hope that your family has. My boys grew up around this environment. And I'm not going to say they're perfect. They were kids. I know that it's part of what kids do is they're going to test and see where the boundaries are. But you know, one of the things they told us as they became young men, they said, you know what? But we've seen so much, we can never doubt that God is real. Isn't that the environment you want your family growing up in? But it has to start with us. It has to be real. It can't be counterfeit. I am not interested in putting on a show for anybody. If I'm convinced something is fake, we will call them on it. I want the real thing. I don't want junk. I don't want anything that's out of control. I want it to be right, but I want the move of God and whatever he desires to do, then let's step out of the way and let him do it. He has to be building his kingdom, not ours. It should cause people to look at him, not us. I told the early service, I said, you know what? If you ever see me advertise anything and my name is bigger on it than the name of Jesus, come slap me. Because it has to be about him. Somebody said they would do that if it ever called for it. I said, I'm not worried about it because I'm never going to go there. See, God wants us to, there should be something that allows us to stand out. And Jesus intended his followers to walk in power until the day he returns for his people. Let me throw something out there. Maybe you've never thought of it this way. If you're saved and you ask Christ in your life and you know your destination is heaven and there's nothing the enemy can do about that, what is going to be Satan's next thing? He's going to say, well, if I can't have them, maybe I can keep them powerless. Maybe I can make them so afraid of a genuine move of God that they won't pursue the fullness of everything that he has for them and they will just sit there and, you know what, because he's not too concerned about powerless Christians. Matter of fact, let me, let me take it a step further. See, we live in this nation. We, we have this feeling among us that, that somehow the church is sliding backwards. That less and less of our society is following Christ. And that's true for our society. But guess what? Our society isn't the whole planet. This faith, this move of the living God is moving faster and bringing more people to Christ than at any time in history. I've used this figure several times. There is now almost 2.2 billion people on the planet that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that number is growing every day. But you know what the difference is? 
the places that they believe in the move of the Holy Spirit, and it is still for today, is still growing like the early church. The places where we've made it controversial is where the church is in decline. Empowered, manpowered, two different things. God intended his church, he intended us to be and to do empowered by his spirit. See, it's a power beyond ourselves. I don't you, I want to walk in that power. I want him to have his way. Last thing I want to get to this morning is kind of come back full circle. Yes, Jesus wants to advance his church. But he wants each and every one of us to have a fulfilled life. He came so that we would have life and have it to the full. So we have an enemy that says he comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Look around us. He is still very active in that area. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. And have it to the full. You ever had somebody try to convince you that they're living a fulfilled life? I mean, they tell you the whole story. They, man, I found this thing, I found that thing, and man, my life is so fulfilled now. But if you really listen to what they're saying, they're trying more to convince you or convince themselves than really being a life-changing situation. I, as I thought about this, I thought, of, I thought of the magazines that you see as you're standing in line at the checkout. And I thought, you know what? You either have all these articles trying to tell you how that, that this and that and this other thing is so fulfilling, and then you have all these other ones that, where you see the people that used, they used to have an article that said how fulfilling their life was. Now they're in drug rehab, they're facing divorce, and they've committed suicide. It's all right there to be viewed. I don't know about you, but to me, there's more to life than that. Jesus came for us to have a life to the full. You see, there's a huge difference between knowing about something and experiencing it. 25 years of my life, I knew about marriage, I knew that it existed. I'd seen people step up and exchange their vows to one another. I'd seen people fall in love from a distance. I'd seen all these things happen. And then a little over 32 years ago, it happened to me. And trust me, there's a big difference between seeing it and experiencing it. How do you remember when, when you first fell in love? I, mean, I remember I was it's like I was almost useless. If I didn't have Kim around, I was useless. I remember sitting at work one day, and at the time I was working as a heavy equipment operator, and one of the guys that knew that I'd found somebody I was really getting serious with came walking up and said, man, I'll be glad when you guys get married. You're useless now. <laughs> Your mind's always off on something else. He meant it in the best loving kind of way, but it was a point. I mean, you know, you just something happens. 
And there's something about when you experience something. No, it's not always perfect. But you know what I love about this thing? What I've experienced over these 32 years is that there is somebody that is right there beside me that we've had incredible moments and incredible memories and we've had battles that we've fought and we have things that we've gone through. But yet even walking through the midst of those difficult times, I look and that person is still there right beside me, still walking with me, still my best friend and my biggest fan. There is something about experiencing that. And it's the same thing with us following Christ. There's something about, we can know all about it. I can want to know about Abraham Lincoln. I can be his biggest fan. I can study everything he ever did. I can read his speeches. I can go stand by his tomb and try to talk to him. I can do all these things, but all I can ever have is just a head knowledge about who he was. I can never know the man. And I'm concerned that too many people want a historian's relationship with Jesus. They want to know him. They want to know all about him. They want to study him but they don't want to go all the way to an experience with him. There is something about when you experience. See, God intended his church to experience being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the miracle that Jesus promised was sent for all of us. Yet some try to say that it ended at the end of a book of the Bible that as I just showed you, has no ending. Others try to say that it ended with the first generation of believers, yet Peter said it was generational. Other people try to tell us that it was for a previous dispensation of time, yet Peter and the prophet Joel says, this is that, that in the last days, I'm not sure about you, but what dispensation of time comes after last? Some then even try to take it a step further and say it was by, it's all done by the power of Satan. Isn't that what they said about Jesus? The Pharisees try to say, well, he does those things by the power of Satan. I love the story of the blind man that was healed from birth. The Pharisees tried that junk with him. And they said, well, don't you know that the man that did that, we know that he's a sinner. And they had accused him before of doing things by the power of Satan. I love the response of the blind man. He says, I don't know about all that. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And then I love it. He goes on. If you read it, I love it. We don't have time to get into that. But I love the whole discourse he has between him and the Pharisees. Because a couple of times he says, oh, you want to be his disciples too? And that just riled him up even more. See, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Because they're arguing something that they have an experience that they don't know nothing about. I know this is a little bound, out of bound illustrations, but sometimes my brain works weird, so I'm going to throw it out there anyway. If you saw Bigfoot and you experienced that and somebody tried to tell you Bigfoot didn't exist... You would say, uh-uh, I know what I saw. Right? 
I know that's a weird analogy, but when you've experienced God's presence and his power and his infilling, I don't care what kind of argument somebody brings. They can say, well, you're arguing against Scripture. Well, you know what? There's people with just as many letters behind their name that come down on the Spirit-filled side of things too. So it's a matter of of how you look and interpret Scripture. And, And all I know is I interpret it this way, and my experience backs it up. So your argument doesn't hold any water. See, Jesus wants us to be fooled. See, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God and you are not your own? I don't know if you thought of this this way. A few years back, this, this hit me. Really, if you look at it, there's basically three temples in the Bible. There's the tabernacle. There's the temple that was built. And then on the day of Pentecost, we became the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church no longer became a building, but we became the body of Christ. You know what the interesting thing about it is this? As I begin to think about that and I saw that, is all three times... God himself lit the fire. When the tabernacle was built and dedicated and they placed the altars, they prayed the prayer of dedication and God himself lit the fire. When the temple was built and dedicated, they put the sacrifices in place, they prayed and God himself lit the fire. On the day of Pentecost, when we were the church and God was getting ready to say, no longer is my presence going to be in a building, but my presence is going to be in all believers, he himself lit the fire. God desires for his people to be filled. Real quick before we pray, let's look at this. Because it always comes back to people sometimes always get so hung up on the idea of tongues. James 3, 7, and 8 says this, For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. How many of you have ever had a moment that something happens and all of a sudden something slips out of your mouth, your tongue rattles something off before you even thought, and you're like, that probably wasn't the best thing to say. That tongue is hard to control. You know what I think? Why the sign of tongues? To me, it boils down to this. What better way to show that a person is truly filled with the almighty presence of God, the Holy Spirit, than for even the tongue to be under control. See, tongues was a part of the early church. Acts 10, 45 and 46 says, All the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Now let's look at that for just a moment. 
<clears throat> First of all, the idea of Gentiles being saved and being filled with the Spirit was just this foreign concept to many of the early believers. Because it was all about the Jews. And, and even though it was prophesied that His Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, when this happened, they were taken back. But I want you to notice something. What did they see as the sign that stood out that even the Gentiles were filled with the Spirit? They began to speak in tongues just as they did. See, we believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit, that the outward sign, the outward evidence is speaking in tongues. And we see, too, that later on, as people, as, as Paul would talk and he would write the letters to the churches, he was trying to encourage the churches. You know, people try to say that all of that ended with the apostles, but if you look at it, if you read 1 Corinthians, as a matter of fact, if you get a chance, I don't have time to get into all the passages, but read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and he lays out, Paul lays out these instructions to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, this is how you have church. He was addressing the fact that there were some things going on there. There's a little bit of a free-for-all, a little bit out of control, and he's saying, this is how you have church, this is how you do things, this is how it should be done decently and in order, and he lays all that out, and he makes these statements. And he talks about them speaking in tongues. And he says this in Ephesians 6, even another time. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication that to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. In other words, he's saying to pray in the Spirit. What do you think he means by praying in the Spirit? He's praying using the gift that the Holy Spirit gives us. How many of you ever had those times that you got something going on? You're just like, you know what? I, I want to pray for this, but I just don't know how to pray. That's when you say, you know what? I'm just going to step forward and pray in the Spirit because He knows what to pray. There's so much more I can get into that I don't have time. I'm going to end with this, and then we're going to pray. 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40. Paul is ending his letter to the church at Corinth. And he makes this instruction. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. See, there's a balance. There's a balance to this. We shouldn't push back. We shouldn't say, Lord, that stuff has no place in your church because to me it is pretty clear we're going against Scripture if we do. Can things get out of control and out of bounds? Are there times that things happen that it is certainly just somebody acting out in their flesh? Yes, but I'm telling you there is a spot there in the middle where it is the sovereign move of God can do what he desires to do and he can move by his spirit and we better not get so dry that we say that stuff doesn't have a place here today. But we also better make sure that we don't get so far in the flesh that we're distracting because that's part of what Paul was dealing with in the letter in 1 Corinthians there. He was addressing some things where some things were getting out of balance in the church. I want the genuine 
thing right in the middle. And I believe that all of this is definitely for today, that the gifts of the Spirit are meant to be in operation in the church today. It needs to be done right. It needs to be balanced. If things are out of balance, it needs to be corrected. But I am not going to say that that stuff is not available because I'm not going to reject what God desires to do. Matter of fact, I want more of what God wants to do. And that's the direction this church is going. That's the direction this church has been going. But I don't know about you, I've had just an urgency of late that we've got to get back to being the church that God called us to be. Because us winning philosophical debates with somebody isn't going to win the world. But the I once was blind and now I can see arguments is the best argument you can have. When God is moving, things happen. When somebody sees that person that their life was messed up, they were caught up in all the junk and all of a sudden they're radically changed. It's going to influence people. somebody says the doctor told me I had cancer and there was nothing that could be done and all of a sudden they're prayed over and they go back to the doctor and they get the report they're cancer free that's going to get people's attention when the person comes down for prayer saying the doctors this has happened two times recently saying that the doctors have said there's no way we can have a child and they're prayed over and in a matter of like three weeks later you find out that they're expecting a child that's the kind of things that we're talking about but it starts with us being a spirit filled people The recipe for being filled with the Spirit isn't as difficult as you think. We had a lady this morning in the early service that had been seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit for a long time. It had been pretty difficult for her just because her background, she was always taught that that was not for today, that that was wrong, that that was, you know. And so she had some stuff she had to work through. This morning in the early service, she had her breakthrough. It was miraculously filled with the Spirit. But we make it so hard. And really, God's not that difficult. We just seek Him with a pure heart. Ask Him to fill you with all He has for you. Don't get caught up in tongues. Don't ask for tongues. Just seek Him. The best thing you can do is just come up and say, Lord, I love you. I want everything you have for me. Just simply ask. Be open. Don't focus on the other. Just praise him, worship him, love him, ask him for all that he has for you. And then as you feel impressed, as you feel something begin to well up inside you, just let it out. It's easy. That's all there is to it. So this morning, they're going to lead us into a little bit of worship.
you're here today and you've never fully surrendered, there's so much. If you have questions about this, I can tell you there's so much. I had so much stuff in my notes today. I probably talked too long as it is. But I'm telling you, there's a realness to this. If you just open yourself up and you surrender, if you haven't fully given your life to Christ, now will be the time to say, Lord, I ask you into my life. I surrender everything. And while you're doing that, just say, Lord, fill me up. As I empty myself of the junk, fill me up with everything that you have for me. And just begin to seek him and worship him. And he will come as you ask him, and he will fill you because that is his desire. Does that mean it happens instantly every single time? No. I grew up around this thing. I was raised in a Christian home. I grew up seeing crazy things happen in the altars and people being healed. That was was a part of my life growing up. We were married more than a couple years before I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I had gone out and prayed for it, but I was always one of those people who's like, I'm not doing nothing that's not real and genuine. I'm not going to fake nothing for nobody. And it just never happened because I was uptight. I was all worried about it. You know what? When you finally filled me, even though I've been asking, kind of like this morning, we were married. We were in our own bedroom, just the two of us before kids. And we're having our own Bible time and our own prayer time. All of a sudden, there was a presence that came in the room and filled me right there in my own bedroom where I was. Is because I'd finally slowed down and stopped and just said, Lord, I want everything you have. I give my life. I give it all to you. And it was in that moment. All it takes is surrender. So they're going to lead us in this song. And I would ask you, if you're here, you say, you know what? Matter of fact, we're not going to make this a hard altar call. As they're doing this song, if you're hearing you say, you know what, I just want everything God has for me. No preconditions, no exceptions. I'm just open. And as they do this song, I'd ask you to just come down and just begin to worship him and just begin to tell him that, Lord, I want everything you have for me. Don't get caught up in tongues. Don't get caught up in the other stuff. Say, Lord, I'm open for you.